Hello, and welcome to another cast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Brenna B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 111th episode of the Not a Cast titled Turn Cloak, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Theon 3, in which Theon Greyjoy descends through the first five layers of hell takes a look around and decides that the fifth layer, well, just isn't deep enough. He's going for that magical sixth layer. Makes me think of when a, a bunch of characters in The Simpsons are digging a giant hole and you see them at the bottom and then you hear Chief Wickham go, no, no, dig up, stupid. <laughs> That's this chapter. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester, Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves. Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Archmaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, Ward of the North. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, Ward of the West, the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised. The High Bearded Priest. Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King. Lady Zeta Valyria, Hedrigal, Cap of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamis, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, L.C. the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Dades, and Gentle Thems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for Several Unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldiver, the waiter for T.W.A.L., A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First for Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Avoric, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser of the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great Game of Thrones, Portions of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Sean Will the Slayer, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpion, the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, and Marshall Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked, and the Jade Sea. Thank you, Counselors, very, very much. Thank you, Counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novels, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week, the second part of the question we dealt with last week, comes from Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, a High Lord. Why doesn't George just come out with a mini book that covers the two battles, the battles being the Battle of Ice and the Battle of Fire? Because the problem is only going to get worse as it goes along, and that having a book arc versus the series will be difficult, in my opinion. Or if he is having problems trying to finish up the series in two more books, why doesn't he, why doesn't he just call Feast and Dance one book, and then he has three more books to finish up the series? Well, you know, obviously these things are difficult to, you know, answer in any detail because not only because, you know, all these discussions are going on in George's mind, but also because he's probably changing his mind about these things fairly frequently. <laughs> this is why Winds is taking so long from what we've been able to gather. It's not just, you know, raw page count or how many story plot twists George has finalized in his mind. It's just what order is the story going to be told in? How many pages can he fit in this book? What would be shifted into another book? Can he split it up like he did Feast and Dance or would that be another nightmare? We know he's been 
working with these questions, just trying to step back from the other nightmare of this as a creative process and just think about it in a larger context. It's it's it's, it's interesting to think about getting away from venerating the single novel as as the source of this kind of storytelling tradition, because obviously George grew up reading stories being told in serial parts in magazines. You know, you got, you know, literary heroes like Charles Dickens who published entire works that way. And Feast and Dance, every part of the writing process, for better or worse, really broke down the idea of this sterling complete, the novel that I have composed (laughs) in my lair as an author. You know, they were just in fragments, in parts. That's part of what makes them frustrating, but also part of what really makes them exhilarating. Part of what I kind of like about them in retrospect, even though waiting for them in that state was definitely not a fun process. And while part of me, you know, the fussy part of me that wants all my CDs and DVDs just so, wants like, no, I <laughs> you? want the... You? Who, who could have thought that? <laughs> the Wes Anderson part of me just wants, no, I want the Winds of Winter, just as the complete inviolate. But part of me is just like, you know what? The series is already not that. You know what? Like that ship has kind of sailed to a certain extent. Maybe we need chunks. Maybe we need a novella. Maybe we need to reconcile ourselves to that. But I'm not in charge of that. George R. R. Martin's in charge of that. I understand creatively why he shies away from that. And also, if you release the battles on their own, they might just seem dramatically kind of inert. You know, it's just like, here's a battle scene. Here's a clip, you know, from an episode. Right. Mm, that might start to feel weird. That might start to, we might start to have trouble emotionally wrapping our brains around that. I do like I do like the shortcut if he feels the need to call it a seven book series just called Feast Dance, One Gigantic Book. Why not? Why not? You're in charge of these things. Again, like we're... These these terms are so fluid at this point within this particular series because of how Feast and Dance worked. Because of like the winds sample chapters, they may as well be released at this point. Like, aren't they aren't they basically inviolate works on their own? Isn't Theon one? Isn't the Forsaken? We're doing four episodes on the Forsaken. Is it a chapter in the Winds of Winter? Really, a book that doesn't exist, or is it the Forsaken? These are great thoughts, man. I I never like got you. Like, I, I I could need to like press you on some of these like meta topics on a Song of Ice and Fire because you're you're outstanding. That's great work. Um, I think it's it's these are fascinating questions. Uh, the one that I think we've been talking a lot about is why not just put the battles in a single book? And I think there is I understand the desire for that because it would get something out to the public, which George has kind of done with these sample chapters. Because look, most of the sample chapters deal with the Battle of Ice and mostly the Battle of Fire. I think it's what five chapters from the Battle of Fire and one from the Battle of Ice. So that's a majority of the chapters that George has released so far from the Winds of Winter as samples or as read at convention appearances. At the same time, all of those storylines interconnect and relate to other storylines which wouldn't be fig- which wouldn't be featured in such a novella such as the battles or a book of swords i know our, our friend michael aka bookshelf stud had talked about um this idea that the book of swords book that george released a couple years ago as an anthology and included the sons of the dragon which is my um it's my least favorite part of a song of ice and fire it's a really not my favorite part about what of, of george's history but that's okay george did a little bit better in rewriting in fire and blood volume one anyways uh that he could have had like the battle chapters from uh, from the winds of winter in that book and i think like there's a couple things to go against it again like john's story relates to the battle of ice barristan danny victorian Tyrion, all of these characters relate to the battle of fire and then they have extensive fallouts to various other characters in a song of ice and fire to include young grift to include characters that are in westeros if you're talking about the battle of fire the other aspect too and and i think like this is something that i, I people should realize about george r barton because george could basically take what he has right now in terms of the winds of winter drop it in front of his publisher's desk and be like publish this shit you know edit it out and publish it But he hasn't chosen to do that because he believes, and I think rightfully so, that the book that he's going to be publishing at some point, perhaps hopefully by before the end of the year, perhaps he'll announce before the end of the year. We'll see. I don't know. I honestly don't know. 
I've heard things. Anyways, um, but <laughs> shit. Um, but uh, but I think like that's uh, he could do that, but it wouldn't be to the level of his skill and creativity that he has, and that's. And he he's always said that he knows he's going to be remembered for A Song of Ice and Fire over top of Wild Cards, over top of Dying of the Light, over top of Fever Dream, which, of course, we'll talk about a little bit later at the end of the, this podcast. But this is something that George is also doing, is that he's not doing this for the money at this point. I think that's something that we that's kind of admirable, that George can be like, fuck you to his editors and his publishing house. Like, I'm actually going to publish the book that I want to publish. You have to, I mean, look, there's a bit of moxie that goes in, in saying like, I'm not going to publish the battles as a single like novella or something like that. I'm not going to publish what I have right now because I don't feel it's up to standard. So you guys are going to have to wait five, six, seven, eight nine, ten years <laughs> between books. And I think that's, I mean, I, I, it sounds like suck upish, but I, I honestly think that's admirable for a writer to have that creative freedom to do that. And as, as an artist, I think that's very admirable and great. And I think that's more, um, I, I think it's better than this kind of like rush a book out every two years, even though Game Clash and A Storm of Swords both came out every two years in the late 90s. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, no one has one creative process. It ebbs and flows. And yeah, it's, you know, part of me is like, yeah, you know, I, I really like the the filmmaker Jim Jarmusch controls his own negatives. He always has Final Cut in his movies. And I love that. You know, I admire that kind of stubborn, independent, artistic spirit. But part of me thinks also like, you know, how many how many years has James Cameron spent on the Avatar sequels that are going to see the light of day, you know, when your grandkids are ancient, maybe? He's inventing the filmmaking for that, though. He's, he's, exactly. Well, that's the thing. Like, at, at what point do you become like Howard Hughes, you know, where you just sure. like calcified yourself behind the, the wall of your own exacting creating creative genius? So and I don't think George is anywhere close to that, of course. That's not what I'm saying. But like, you know, that's that's what if left unchecked, uncritically unchecked, that's what the, sure. the myth of the individual artistic Icarus like genius eventually <laughs> turns into. And um, I just think it's it's. As we wait, you know, interminably, as we do, I think it's it's good to loosen up our understandings of like you know what 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 the form of a novel is and what the the drip 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 of a creative process is. The problem that makes it really difficult in this case is this story is so built around specific plot twists we're all waiting for. Mm-hmm. This isn't like a memoir, like you know, a deeply felt individual character story. I can release one chapter at a time, and you get lost in yeah. the atmosphere. Like this is we want to know what's going to happen. That does limit the format of it. Friend of the show, uh, Adam Whitehead, a.k.a. Wordhead, has apparently told George for Dream of Spring that don't worry about it being like the eighth book or the seventh book, rather. Just publish it in four volumes if needs be. Just do it in four volumes. It's fine. Just call it a Dream of Spring Volume 1, Dream of Spring Volume 2, Dream of Spring Volume 3, um, a Dream of Spring Volume 4. If needs be, that's okay. So thank you so much to Kabath for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Notacast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Notacast A-S-O-I-A-F where we have monthly bonuses, Song of Ice and Fire, and Fever Dream episodes, show notes, Q&A, and access to the Nala Slack for our two highest tiers. Mm-hmm. But enough about Patreon for this week. We'll talk much more about that next week. When we last checked in with Theon, he had gotten thoroughly pantsed by Esgrid, who um, turns out was his sister, Asha. Maybe you guys have read this story before. Before final war plans were made for the Great Conquest of the North. Great Conquest? I don't know about that. Let's find out how Prince Vale's son bunglefucks something new in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings Theon 3. Theon wiped the spittle off his cheek with the back of his hand. Rob will gut you, Greyjoy, Ben Frittard screamed. He'll feed you Turncloak's heart to his wolf, you piece of sheep dung. Aaron Dampere tells Theon that his failed nephew has to get has to kill Benfred now, but Theon wants to question him. Benfred defies Theon and tells him to get bent. Aaron Dampere then is there invoking Article 5 of the NATO Convention, telling Theon that a spit against one is a spit against all. 
Theon says he's a big, strong man, and he's so totally in command. Aaron yells back that he's here to counsel Theon, and Theon's all like, Aaron is here to spy on me, man. No one liked him, but they liked Dampere. Or rather, they were terrified of Knuckle Dampere's religious ferocity. Tallheart yells that Theon is going to get his ass headed, beheaded, ass head beheaded, and states that the others are going to conduct a lewd sexual act of the drunk god. Really, language Benford, a little inappropriate. Then Tallheart tries spitting again, and Theon realizes that Benford just spit his life away. He orders his man Stig to silence him, but then Dampere steps in. No, Dampere declared. He must be given to the god, the old way. What does it matter, Theon thought. Dead is dead. Take him then. You will come as well, Theon. You command here. The offering should come from you. That was more than Theon could stomach. You were the priest, uncle. I leave the god to you. Do me the same kindness and leave the battles to me. Theon waves them off and they drag Benfred to the sea to drown him. The old way. Theon thinks this is a kindness because Stig wasn't that good of a headsman, which... How is it a kindness to drown to death again, Theon? And then Theon thinks back to Benfred and how he used to make fun of him when he came down with Ned Stark to Torrin Square a few years back. Anyways, enough memories for the moment. Theon hears his men hooting and hollering like Texans putting a dump truck's worth of barbecue sauce onto a single rack of ribs. So he goes and investigates, thinking about how much this wasn't much of a battle. More of a slaughter. He climbs up onto a bunch of stones and watches as his men kill dying horses and loot the corpses of the dead northmen of their belongings. Theon thinks Big Daddy Balon would approve of this, but then a thought enters uninvited. Theon thought of seeking out the bodies of the two men he'd slain himself to see if they had any jewelry worth the taking but the notion left a bitter taste in his mouth. He could imagine what Eddard Stark would have said. Yet, that thought made him angry too. Stark is dead and rotting and not to me, he thought, reminding himself. Yeah, okay, Theon. Theon notices a guy named Todrick fighting with a Botley boy over a blood-stained wolfskin cloak. He realizes that Todrick is drunk and he thinks that Ironborn bros would go into berserker mode blood drunk in battle. But this guy is just... Well, just drunk drunk. So he orders Wex to get his bow and, and quiver. When it arrives, Theon notches an arrow and then shoots, accidentally hitting Todrick in the stomach. Drunk dude hits the ground hard and begins dying noisily. Theon orders the Botley men to silence him and they slit his throat and loot his body before he bleeds out. It's a regular old touching Ironborn moment, which is fucking horrifying. Theon starts chest thumping about being a good war leader despite somehow some of his men thought of him as a soft boy from the Greenlands. He asks if anyone else has a thirst before kicking over the tall heart banner that Benfred's dead squire still held. He sees a rabbit skin tied to the flag and wonders why they had rabbit skins at all. He never really got to ask the question. He got spat on instead. He tossed his bow back, back to Wex and strode off remembering how elated he'd felt after the Whispering Wood and wondering why this didn't taste as sweet. Tallheart, you bloody, overproud fool. You never even sent out a scout. Theon then recounts in his head about the battle and how they'd ambushed the Tallheart bros coming down the road as the Northmen were singing and joking around. They hit them with arrows first before Theon led the men-at-arms with dagger, axe, and warhammer into the chaos. He ordered the leader spared. Only Theon had not expected it to be Benford Tallheart. Theon heads back to the shore just in time to see Benford's body pulled from the water and looks out over his... conquest. Of the fishing village, nothing remained but cold ashes that stank when it rained. The men had been put to the sword, all but a handful that Theon had allowed to flee to bring the word to Torrens Square. Their wives and daughters had been claimed for salt wives, those who were young enough and fair. The crones and the ugly ones had simply been raped and killed or taken for thralls if they had useful skills and did not seem likely to cause trouble. I, yeah, that, that sure 
evil that paragraph is stomach turning. Theon had planned the attack of the village and then led the nighttime raid into town. He wasn't a big fan of what he did, but really, guys, he had no choice. He had to do it. Besides, Asha was probably winning a castle of her own while he distracted the Northmen with his raid against the Stony Shore. That would allow Asha to take Deepwood Mod after all. And after all is to, and after all is done and won, they will make songs for that bitch Asha and forget that I was even here. That is, if he allowed it. From atop his ship, Foam Drinker, Dagmar Clefjaw, who Theon excluded from the battle to ensure Dagmar got none of the glory, calls down to Theon about how he should be exulting in battle, but Theon's not smiling. Why? Dagmar smiles, and Theon thinks it's a hideous sight, given the face that is given the fact that his face was split in half by an axe at an early age. And while Dagmar had grown a snowy white beard in the years since, the hair never grew over the scars. Dagmar talks about the songs the Northmen were singing, and Theon quips that Benford's boys sang better than they fought. Dagmar asks how many men were lost, and Theon asks if he's talking about our men. If that's the case, just one guy, the one that Theon killed. Some men were born to be killed. A lesser man might have been afraid to show a smile as frightening as his. Yet Dagmar grinned more often and more broadly than Lord Balin ever had. Ugly as it was, that smile brought back a hundred memories. Theon had seen it often as a boy, when he jumped a horse over a mossy wall or flung an axe and split a, tar and split a target square. He'd seen it when he blocked a blow from Dagmar's sword, when he put an arrow through a seagull on the wing, when he took the tiller of the hand and guided a longship safely through a snarl of foaming rocks. He gave me more smiles than my father, and had her start together. E even Rob. He ought to have smiled. He ought to have, he ought to have won the smile the day he'd say Bran from the Wildling, but, but instead he got a scolding, as if I was just some cook who'd burn the stew. Dagmar is like that dad that Theon never had. I mean, that, that might be the most touching moment in Theon's story to Clash Kings. Father figure Dagmar invites Theon onto his boat, and Theon climbs up and is led back to Dagmar's cabin. There, Dagmar offers Theon a drink, and Theon says no. Hmm. Theon reports that they didn't capture enough horses. They'll have to make do with what they have. Wait, Dagmar says, why do they need horses? They're going to be sailing, right? Well, Theon replies he's got a brand new scheme in mind that will just blow your mind. Theon knows that he can't possibly pull off his plan unless he has Dagmar on his side. So when Dagmar says that Balon only wanted Theon and his crew to raid the Stony Shore, Theon senses either disappointment or interest in Dagmar's expression. So Theon starts charming Dagmar, calling the Ironborn dude his father's man and extremely skilled at everything he does. The best Ironborn there ever was. Ah, Dagmar puts in, that may have been true at one point, but no longer. Andric the Unsmiling, Black Lorn, and Carl the Maid are better now than Dagmar because Dagmar is old. Theon notices that Dagmar's hand is covered in jewels, gold, and dragonstone, all won via the Iron Price, and he continues by saying that Dagmar is wasted raiding and reaving along the stony shore. He's Balon's best man, after all. Dagmar's grin twisted his lips apart and showed the brown splinters of his teeth. Nor for his trueborn son, he hooted. <laughs> I know you too well, Theon. I saw you take your first step, help you bend your first bow. Tis not me who feels wasted. <laughs> by, by, by rights it should have been, I should have my sister's command, Theon admitted. I'm comfortably aware of how peevish that sounded. You take this business too hard, boy. It is only that your fuller father does not know you. With your brother's dead and you taken by wolves, your sister was his solace. He learned to rely on her and she has never failed him. So Theon then starts bragging about being one of Blackfish's picked scouts and how he did very brave battle shit at the Whispering Wood, and he so totally would have killed the Kingslayer. It was just that Darren Horwood came between Theon and Jamie, or else he totally would have done it. Dagmar knows that Theon isn't a coward, which... I don't know about that one. And Theon shoots back, asking if Balon knows this too. This causes Dagmar to look just a mite uncomfortable. He tries to soothe Theon, telling him that it's not that Balon doesn't value a son, it's just like, you know... 
that he doesn't value his son. He was with the Starks too long. Thea encounters that he's no Stark. Ned Stark saw to that. He is going to be a very brave, strong Kraken and totally be Balon's heir. But he cannot do that unless he has some brave deed to prove his value. <laughs> brave deed, huh? Well, Theon will have plenty of chances. He's a young man. He just needs to follow orders and raid the Stony Shore, right? No, Theon says. They'll give that command to Dampere. They are going elsewhere. And yeah, Balon might have said to raid the Stony Shore, but seriously, fuck that, man. Anyone could do that. Theon needs Dagmar for a task that only Dagmar can do. When Dagmar drinks some more and asks what Theon means, Theon knows he's winning the argument. If my sister could take a castle, so can I. Asha has four or five times the men we do. Theon allowed himself a sly smile. But we have four times the wits and five times the courage. Your father will thank me when I hand him his kingdom. I mean to do a deed that the Harpers will sing of for a thousand years. Dagmar had a song written about him back in the day after that axe split his face in half. So Theon recognizes that Dagmar probably still wants a taste of glory. When Dagmar asks what part he would play in Theon's plan, Theon knows that he's won the argument. So Dagmar's role is going to so Dagmar's role is to take most of the boys and march on Torrens Square. Dagmar and his boys would be singing the whole way to let Leobold Tallheart know of his coming, and then Dagmar would conduct a sort of siege in the town. But but wait, Dagmar puts in how would they take the town, especially when it has high stone walls? Well, as to that, Dagmar will build catapults and siege engines. That ain't the old way, dude. They don't besiege, they fight, damn it. Ah, but Leobold won't know that. Leobold will call for aid. Don't kill the ravens flying. Let them go. And then Sir Roger Cassell will come down from Winterfell to lift the siege. Any force he summons will be larger than mine, Dagmar said. And these old knights are more cunning than you think, Theon, or they would have never have lived to see their first gray hair. You set us a battle we cannot hope to win, Theon. This thor this Torrin Square will never fall. Theon smiled. It's not Torrin Square I mean to take. And that is a Clash of Kings, Theon Three. This is, um, we're talking about this in pre-production, but this is the most forgotten chapter, I feel like, in A Clash of Kings, at least, as it's short and it's kind of sandwiched in published order between the major storylines at Storm's End, King's Landing, River Run, and Harrenhal. But it is not a forgettable chapter, in my opinion. What did you think of this chapter, Emmett? I understand why Theon 3 is among one of the more overlooked and underloved chapters in A Clash of Kings. The show did cut around this one, introducing both Dagmar and the plan to take Winterfell, while Theon is still on Pike. Even purely in terms of the books, it's easy in memory to reduce Theon's story in A Clash of Kings to the two chapters spent on Pike and the three chapters spent in Winterfell. They loom so large, the twin towers of Theon's life, the two poles of identity between which he hopelessly swings like a pendulum, awaiting the punishment that will still and silence his movements. But I'm going to argue here that Theon III is essential connective tissue for in his story, and not only that, it is a bleak, bracing, and vital reading experience in its own right. A lot of the live wire nerve endings that make A Song of Ice and Fire what it is are exposed here, in microcosm, in a forgotten part of the world, a forgotten part of the war, and a forgotten part of the story. Well said. And I think George once talked about Robert's Rebellion as having many skirmishes and minor battles that occurred away from the main action of the rebellion, but are not depicted. In my opinion, I think we're getting a sense of what those minor battles and skirmishes may have looked like from that glorious rebellion led by Robert Baratheon. Instead of those battles, though, those major battles at the Trident or at the Stony Sept, there's just slaughter and terror and horror there. And there are no Robert Baratheons, Ned Starks, Rhaegar Targaryens, or John Connington's fighting titanic sea change battles, which decide the course of Westerosi history. There's only Theon, 
and the sickening war crimes he commits in a forgotten fishing village, which then leads to the slaughter of Benford Tallhart's men. But this chapter also serves as a microcosm, we're going to use that word a lot in this podcast episode, for the type of character Theon is trying to be. We're getting the continued tale of Theon's identity crisis as it evolves. He's trying to put aside his soft boy from the Greenlands, ward of Ned Stark image, and desperately, desperately play acting as a Greyjoy, and all to earn his father's respect, admiration, love. I mean, what depths will Theon descend to gain a father's love, to gain an identity? We're getting a taste of it here in this chapter in A Clash of Kings, Theon 3. We certainly are. It builds on those tensions established so well in Pike, but it does so in a, a very specifically structured way. The structure of Theon 3 is absolutely crucial to its success. Theon 3 is a great example of George starting a chapter in Medias Res, skipping ahead of the plot to the most emotionally slash thematically appropriate starting point. You could easily imagine this chapter starting with the raid on the village, or the ambush on Benford Tullhart and his wild hairs, or even after Benford's death. But just as Quentin's first chapter has to start with Adventure Stank to communicate the shape and scope of his story, this chapter has to start with Benford spitting in Theon's face and screaming at him that he's a turncloak. Everything flows from this. George will spend the rest of this chapter filling in the context, showing us how Theon got here and where he goes next because of it. Benford screaming and spitting in Theon's face is the primal scene of Theon III the unshakable image that defines Theon's position in both personal and political terms. We are meant to flinch as readers. It's as if our faces have just been spat in. It's a jolting, uncomfortable way to begin the chapter, forcing us into the position of detectives trying to understand why and how this has happened. Before we get to Theon's crimes, before we get into what he's done and what he's about to do, we start with the reaction. We start with the fallout, the shadow on a wall. We start with the creation of the identity that will dog Theon the rest of the book and claim him whole by the time we meet him again in A Dance with Dragons. Theon Turncloak, traitor to the Starks. He is a pariah to the people among whom he was raised, despised by and alienated from the only community he has known since he was nine years old. Long before he is transformed into Reek by Ramsay, he is someone you curse and spit at when you see in the street. He is no one and other in every sense of the word. George uses the POV structure to ground you in the shock of that feeling, utter rejection, before letting you know how much Theon really deserves it. <laughs> Why is that? Why structure it that way? I don't think it's to absolve Theon of his sins in our eyes. Rather, George is trying to put the readers through the empathy ringer, forcing us into the queasy position of a man barely recognizing the consequences of his own actions. Theon is now looking at the North from the position of a true outsider, rather than someone caught in between. He has been kicked out. Rob, more of a brother to him than his blood brothers, is now someone who, according to Benfred, will come home to kill him. Moreover, Benfred is taunting Theon in general, calling him a coward and less than a man, pricking that masculine identity to which Theon clings so desperately in A Clash of Kings. Asha challenged that identity. Balin challenged that identity. And now Benford is challenging that identity, but from a different cultural perspective. Balin and Asha, as Dagmar will say again reluctantly later in the chapter, consider Theon to be a Stark, in all but name. He's a weak, foolish Greenlander, no true Ironborn. Benford believes the opposite to be true. Theon was supposed to be a Stark loyalist, but has turned out to be unforgivably Ironborn, just another pirate. 
and neither side is wrong exactly. They both have in, like you know data points to draw upon. The difference is their understanding of to whom Theon owes loyalty in the first place. Does he owe his service to the Greyjoys or the Starks? Both sides take it as a given that he owes them loyalty, even as neither is willing to quite hold up their end of the bargain <laughs> by treating him as one of them. Their causes and cultures are irreconcilable, yet they coexist within Theon, rendering it impossible for him to live with any of the choices available to him. We see that so clearly in this scene. After Benfred spits on and screams at Theon, before Theon himself has a chance to react, Aaron Dampere cuts in to demand that Benfred die for it. Nuncle Aaron is the voice of God, keeper of the old ways flame. He says what's ironborn and what ain't. Everyone goes in fear of him, far more than of Theon. He is the gatekeeper who rejected Theon upon his arrival on Pike in Theon 1, and it is he who finds Theon wanting in terms of old way masculinity in Theon 3. As Theon points out, killing Benfred immediately is folly. There is valuable intelligence to be gained from him regarding the state of play in the North. But Aaron doesn't care about that, because as a zealous, politically active priest, all he cares about is using every hierarchical tool available to enforce dogma. This is the Ironborn campaign in microcosm. It is not about actually doing what would be necessary to defeat the Northerners and secure a kingdom long term. It's about the expression of old way ideology, even in proud, outright defiance of reality. Yet it's important to know that Theon's objection to his uncle's ideology is not rooted in a more considered humanitarian approach. <laughs> it's rooted in his own pride and insecurity, as usual. Theon doesn't like that Aaron is interrupting and giving orders. It's bad enough that his uncle was sent to babysit Theon and cow all the men who don't take Theon very seriously. And then, when Benfred continues to insult and threaten Theon, despite Theon trying to keep him alive, how, how ungrateful of him, Theon agrees to execute Benfred after all, despite wanting intelligence from him. Such thin skin on mm -hmm. Theon Greyjoy, such a fragile ego. Even when Theon finally gives the order to kill, he does it in such a way that Aaron respects him less for it, instead of more. It's the worst of both worlds. First, Theon orders that Benfred be beheaded, instead of drowned. Then, after he agrees to drowning as the method of execution, very reluctantly, he neglects to do the deed himself, making Aaron do it. Finally, he doesn't even bother to attend the execution himself. All of which signals to the men around him that Theon is not a real Ironborn leader, not invested in becoming one, and not worth taking seriously long term. Asha remains the heir. The last we see in this book of Aaron Dampere, cultural gatekeeper of the old way, he is giving Theon a reproachful look. Theon has once more failed to be the man he is supposed to be. No matter what Theon does, he winds up getting spat on. That's not to excuse the choices he makes, because he always manages to make the worst possible choice in this book. But the game was rigged against him from the start. Even if he made the best choices, he still wouldn't have amounted to much. I think those are all wonderful points. I think you're exactly right about why Theon is in this in-between place. And I think we see it in the form of these two executions that Theon is considering when it comes to Benford Tallheart. I mean, the way that Theon orders Benford disposed of, it also speaks to his kind of, you know, like I said, Theon in the middle, kind of in limbo mentality where he's not quite Stark and not, not quite Greyjoy. He orders Benfred's head off. But unlike Ned Stark, no, sir, he's no Ned Stark. He's passed the sentence, but he ain't going to swing the sword or the axe in this case. 
he's almost like Robert in that sense, and that he, he has a headsman for that sort of business. He's not going to get his hands dirty in some sort of thing that isn't a glorious swing of the sword or axe in battle. Executions are for lesser men than Theon of House Greyjoy. But then when Aaron all but countermands Theon's order, because, I mean, read the subtext here. Aaron is basically saying, you're going to have, this is not the way you're going to do this. You're actually going to do this this way. Theon, he's going to demand that Theon drown Benford and Theon balks. And like you were saying, he balks not because he's trying to do the humanitarian thing and executing this guy humanely and justly, but because of his pride. But then Aaron proves relentless, telling Theon to drown Benford himself as part of the old way. And Theon's like, fuck it, you do it, Dampier. I'm not going to do this job. This is a job for people that are not Theon of House Greyjoy. So Theon is allowing the old way to occur, but he's still not going to go all the way through with the act. This is a pretty queasy moment considering the execution of Benford Tallheart. And yeah, we do shirk away at Theon, but George is using this scene in terms of communicating the type of character that Theon is, as he's between two worlds in limbo. And much as you were pointing out with how Aaron and Benfred both regard him, he's in a stuck place and he's not earning respect or love from anyone around him. And that's having an impact on his psyche as this chapter builds to talking about events of what happened just before Benford was spitting all over him. Exactly right. His psychological issues are nestled within the larger big picture, and they're having a calamitous effect on each other. Only with this hellish character dynamic established in the reader's mind does George pull back the camera to show us, you know, where we are and what's happening. Theon is carrying out his part in the plan laid out by Big Daddy Balin back on Pike and Theon too. Raid the stony shore, try to lure out the local lords. Well, they wound up luring out Benford Tullhart <laughs> and his wild hares, the rambunctious lads whose hero worship of Rob from afar led them to form this little militia-slash-gang. Compare this setting and these characters to the grand backdrops of the other POVs right now, as you were saying. We've spent our last few episodes in King's Landing, Storm's End, Winterfell. From here, we'll go on to Harrenhal, Riverrun, Karth. We're dealing with the movers and shakers of Westeros and beyond, kings and hands and wizards. <laughs> And now we're in a nameless village along the stony shore, among the remains of people who were just trying to maintain a modest livelihood, watching the execution of a man guilty of nothing more dramatic than immaturity. The deflation is palpable and deliberate, just as Benford's songs collapsed in on themselves in a flurry of arrows and screams. Theon's arrogant projection of his ideal self cannot be reconciled with the shame and grubbiness of this scenario. This is just not the kind of thing the person he wants to be would do. No, he's not. And I think, too, we're also, when we look at these this very minor faction of the Wild Hares, they kind of operate as like a northern version of Renly's Knights of Summer. Again, like how does Theon describe them in this chapter? They come striding on, singing songs and joking to each other, which I think is a, is a deliberate echo on George's part of the feast and melee scene at Bitterbridge from Catelyn's second chapter we did a couple months ago. They're young men. They're unblooded. Again, none of these guys went with Rob on campaign, although seemingly Benfred and probably his boys idolized their king quite, quite highly, or seem him quite highly, rather. And now they've met a bitter fate at the point of a former friend. I mean, we've talked a lot about the word microcosm so far in this podcast episode, and I think we're seeing in the micro sense of what is going to befall the Knights of Summer. Winter is coming, as Catelyn faithfully says in her second chapter at Bitterbridge. Most of the Knights of Summer will meet a bitter end at the Blackwater, many of them killed by their former Tyrell and Reachman friends and allies. For the survivors of the Blackwater, winter is also going to come for them in the Winds Winter as their allies will turn on them and Mace Tyrell, likely in favor of Young Grift. And those 12 or so survivors will then face Daenerys Targaryen and three fire-breathing dragons. 
we're seeing a version of what happens to the Knights of Summer, boys who are led on by this idea of this glorious ethos of battle and what happens to them. Benfred and the Wild Hares in Theon's third chapter got an early taste of what's coming to all of these young men throughout Westeros, Knights of Summer, Wild Hares, people in Rob's army, Lannister men even, who are all facing war, death, and winter. Very well said. And of course, one of the big differences between these recurrences of the pattern is who our POV is on at each time. You know, Catalan's POV in the South works very differently from Theon's POV here. In the midst of these personal and political crucibles we're talking about, we have this, this running inner monologue of our POV Theon Greyjoy, which is used brilliantly here. In season two of the show, Maester Lewin tells Theon that he's not the man he's pretending to be. And that is also true of Theon in the books. But the difference is, is that Theon's inner self in the books is just as bad as his outer self. If anything, it might be worse. The man Theon is pretending to be at least has honesty of purpose. The Theon we know from inside his head is a delusional coward who absolutely refuses to face up to his actions, their consequences, and what they say about him. Show Theon displays genuine torment about the decision to turn on the Starks, writing and then burning a letter to Rob in one of my favorite show-only scenes. Book Theon never even gets that far. The role the Starks play in Theon's inner monologue in the books is not quite that of a family he has abandoned and lost. It's more that of a standard against which he is falling short, a moral standard in part, as when he thinks about how Ned would not approve of all this, but it's mostly a standard of the good life, of glorious battle immortalized in song, of the power and ancientness of Winterfell. It's not really an emotional, personal connection between Theon and the Starks, so much as Theon's projection of a better life for himself, which of course looks like the Starks because it's rooted <laughs> in his life with them, his experiences with the Starks. He's really, he's having a conversation with himself through them, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I think like too, like a lot of this is coming out in Theon's subconscious. It does kind of filter into the surface of what Theon is thinking explicitly here, but it becomes less subconscious as the story goes on because I love the idea and I agree with it. Here it's internal as Theon spars with the ideals of Ned Stark and the brotherhood that Rob gave him in his head versus what his family has provided with him so far in A Clash of Kings, which is nothing resembling the family that he had at Winterfell, which again, was not all that great to begin with. But come Theon's penultimate chapter in A Clash of Kings, it really becomes much more externalized through the dream sequence that Theon has of the Red Wedding and Rob stumbling through the door with a half a hundred arrows in him and bleeding out with Grey Wind. It's very visceral. I just reread that chapter today, so it's really fresh in the mind. And then in A Dance with Dragons, Theon is then sobbing in front of the heart tree, begging to die with the tree takes when the tree takes on the face of Bran Stark. And I think this is just a thrilling rationing of the narrative tension of Theon's internal dialogue with the Starks to external with the internal portion of the dialogue with the Starks here to external and Bran as a vehicle for Theon's future character development. Exactly. When he was talking to Bran's face in the in the tree, it's not like a climax to the deep relationship he had with Bran, because he never had a deep relationship with Bran. What's going on in that scene is he's saying, let me die as Theon. Let me die as myself. Let me get my identity back through dealing with my relationship to the Starks. The, the, the relationship with the Starks is a vessel. It's, a, it's a, a way of unclouding his own personal mirror. Other than Rob, he really didn't seem to have a strong personal relationship with any of these people because Theon is kind of an asshole who doesn't develop <laughs> strong personal relationships with anybody if he can help it on purpose. That's how he operates. And it's only now he's starting to realize, now meaning the series up to, up to date, he's only now starting to realize that that's a bad idea. 
you know, Victorian's POV kind of works the same way <laughs> in that he's always tamping down these troubling thoughts of both empathy and ennui so he can be a proper iron captain. But Victorian knows exactly who he is, culturally speaking. His rock of the old way is so solid, it doesn't even feel wrong to embrace R'hllor as well, because he knows so deeply who he is that it's just like, oh, this I'm just going to put some R'hllor paint on my rock now. Theon lacks that stable foundation, so he's trying to basically make one up on the fly, and we see throughout this chapter that it's just not working out. He tries to tell himself that it's a kindness to drown Benfred, because his neck is so thick it would be tough to get an axe through it. Now, this is transparently absurd. Why is Theon telling himself this obvious self-serving falsehood? Well, because thinking about Benford's neck makes Theon think about the time he spent in Benford's company, making fun of his neck. Back in peacetime, before Theon went home and was found wanting, when he still lived with the Starks. Now in happier times, these thoughts might have been a source of nostalgia for Theon. But now these thoughts are painful because they expose what he's done. He has severed himself from the life he used to live, the life where he rode around to places like Torrens Square. It's gone forever. The young man Theon used to tease is screaming at him, spitting at him. Mm -hmm. And now he's dead, his limp body being dragged out by the surf. When we first met Theon in A Song of Ice and Fire, he was laughing at an execution, kicking Garrod's head away, showing no respect nor solemnity. A jester, a sly smile fixed permanently to his face like a mask. Now all the laughter has died. Mockery has given way to fury, and fury has given way to blood. Theon's memory of life jars with his present-day domain of death. And yeah, you can see how well with how this dovetails with what went down at Storm's End. Renly rode to his death with a smile, his glittering young knights singing around him, until suddenly their songs turned to screams. And the same thing happened here. All that's left of them is their rabbit skins. They are equivalent of the banners in Renly's camp at Storm's End remaining after he'd gone. Now, this might be a reference to the Dead Rabbits, a New York City street gang of Irish toughs between the 1830s and 1850s who were featured prominently of Gangs of New York, which came out a few years after this book was published, but George certainly <laughs> could have known about them and been referencing them. Within Theon's story specifically, the rabbit skin is a symbol of innocence defiled, like Renly's peach juice giving way to his blood in Stannis' dreams. Stannis will never understand what the peach meant, and by the same token, Theon ordered Benfred executed before he could ask him about the rabbits. And we see that Theon immediately turns from wondering about the rabbit skins to kicking over the tall heart banner that Benford Squire held, which of course has a rabbit skin tied to the top of it. So super spot on. Uh, for me, I, I spent the longest time like, thinking about these rabbit skins, wondering why George lends any narrative space at all to them. And I, I guess I finally decided that the rabbit skins function similarly to the pretty ribbon tied around a knight's sword. The rabbit skins work as the northern version of this, giving a sense of chivalry and nobility to deadly purpose. Or to paraphrase Sandra Clegane from A Storm of Swords, maybe the lance is prettier with the rabbit skins hanging off it, but it'll kill you just as dead. The rabbit skin lances are double-edged, as Benford and his wild hairs find here. The lance was meant to do harm to those who had come to raid and to spoil the north, but instead it marked these men for, for death, as all of them die by Ironboard's sword, axe, arrow, and dagger. And then they're left in the ashes. Theon and Stannis both have condemned themselves to stand cold in the shadows. Their violent acts leave them exiled from the domain of youth and laughter and summer. They stare at peaches and rabbits, signs and signifiers of song and story, and they can't even comprehend what they're looking at anymore. They're too far gone to smell the roses, as George put it regarding Stannis. Theon belongs to death now, and cannot relate to Benford's naive optimism. 
It's as if he's ordering the execution of his own younger self, erasing <laughs> him in favor of a Reaver's life, just as Ramsay will erase the Reaver in favor of Reek. Again, this is not first and foremost a moral distinction that I'm drawing here. Theon was always an asshole and never interested in becoming anything other than an asshole. The change is one of self-perception, a transformation that only stands out because Theon is a POV and George is so good at writing his thoughts. Theon used to be able to tell himself he wasn't an asshole because he was having such a good time and getting along with almost everyone around him. The best time of Theon's life, the standard he keeps returning to, is the Whispering Wood. But such a battle. He never stops talking about it. At the Battle of the Whispering Wood, Theon Greyjoy felt like a figure out of the stories and songs. He had transcended this mortal veil. He walked on air. He spoke to the gods and heard them speak back. He achieved immortality. More than anything, he wants to get that back. He wants to live inside that bubble for the rest of his days. But you can't live inside the stories and songs, and A Song of Ice and Fire makes clear again and again how much damage can be done if you try. Theon can't understand why this doesn't feel like the Whispering Wood. Why has his elation turned to ennui, summer to winter, joy turning to ashes in his mouth? After all, this scenario has certain elements in common with that earlier battle in Book 1. Benfred, like Jaime before him, was lured into a slaughter. Like Jamie before him, Benford was an overproud fool who failed to scout the situation properly. And Theon, like Rob in the Whispering Wood, took expert advantage of the situation with archers and then a charge to finish them off, taking the enemy leader captive and leaving, losing none of his own men in the battle. So why then did the Battle of Whispering Wood feel like transcendent glory, and this battle on the stony shore feels like massacring, quote, sheep fleeced in steel? Because during the Whispering Wood, Theon rode side by side with Robb Stark, the brother whose company he enjoyed more than his blood brothers, but who was also himself in the process of becoming a figure of legend, the young wolf. Theon was there uh, by his side when that legend was forged, and he had none of Catelyn's worries and fears to cloud his thrill at being at ground zero for the next great story. Moreover, they were riding against Jaime Lannister, as we know him in the story so far, a sneering villain you love to hate. As Theon says in this chapter, they came this close to crossing swords. <laughs> Heroic, thrilling, memorable. But this? Uh, he went into battle alongside men he does not like and who do not like him, <laughs> even though they're supposed to be his people, unlike the Northerners. And they went into battle against a foe that offers no glory for Theon, and only makes him think of the way things used to be and will never be again. It leaves a bad taste in his mouth. The Whispering Wood for Theon is where he became who he always wanted to be. In this chapter, he's trying to be who he's supposed to want to be, and it's empty. Of course, this distinction between inner and outer self only matters for a psychological profile of his character as a POV. In terms of evaluating his actions, you are what you pretend to be. You always, always become the mask. Hmm. Well said. I mean, there's this also this fascinating absurdity as Theon starts to remember the battle where he thinks, Tallheart, you bloody, overproud fool, you never even sent out a scout. I mean, on, on one hand, Theon is obliquely referring to his role as one of Brendan Blackfish's pick scouts. Again, he references several times in this chapter, showing us that Theon is wise in the ways of war that Benford wasn't. But consider that Theon has taken the training and experience he's received fighting on behalf of Rob Stark in order to kill Rob Stark's Northmen. So on the other hand, Theon is feeling, I think, a subconscious guilt over what he's doing here in the North. 
He externalizes that guilt by making it about Benford not being a great warrior, not being much of a challenge, him and his wild hairs. Theon might be partially thinking that he wanted a good fight like he had at the Whispering Wood and won an opponent like Jimmy Lannister. He was just so close to actually crossing swords with. Instead, Theon got Benford Tallheart and the Wild Hairs, a poor substitute for Jamie Lannister and his crack squadron of Lannister cavalry in the, river, in the Riverlands. These are Northmen, not Westermen. Northmen who Theon once shared meals with, spent time with, and mocked back in the day. But Theon has to kill him and his men. He has no choice. These are Northmen who are his allies, and that fills him with the guilt, and that type of guilt is going to stay with him throughout the narrative in A Clash of Kings and spill on over into A Dance with Dragons as everyone looks at him as being one of the worst people in A Song of Ice and Fire that they've ever encountered. People who as far and wide as Ramsay Snow and Roose Bolton, to the Karstarks, to the Starks themselves, to all of the guys who want Theon to be executed by Stannis Baratheon at the Crofter's Village. That stays with him. His actions here and this unknown village in the middle of nowhere Westeros, they stick with him and it builds a reputation for him that takes him on toward the end of the narrative, or at least to the end of the narrative so far in Theon's sample chapter from The Winds of Winter. All because he picked the Ironborn over the Northmen at the end of the day. And look at Theon's fellow Ironborn raiders, a pack of thieves, rapists, and mass murderers with no loyalty to each other, let alone anyone else. It's difficult to overstate the obscene awfulness of their actions here. They've wiped out an entire village, none of the residents of which had committed any crime against anyone on the Iron Islands. Those they haven't brutalized and killed, they've brutalized and enslaved, pulling them back to the Iron Islands to do all the work while the Reavers keep reaving. Imagine all the moments in time that made up this village. Imagine weddings, imagine funerals, imagine celebrations of birth, of a good catch, of recovery from an illness. Imagine a drunk sing-along, imagine shy smiles around a campfire. All of it's gone. Not only the people, but the place. All that's left is cold ashes that stink when it rains. Terror has passed over this land and left only annihilation. Yet Theon's men are not content with having inflicted this gauntlet of suffering on the living. Their inhumanity extends to the dead, and beyond that to each other. The rough noises of victory are what Theon calls them, the spectacle of ironborn raiders harvesting prizes from the dead. This, Theon thinks, is what paying the iron price amounts to. Robbing corpses. These men who think themselves badasses, pinnacles of creation next to whom all others are subhumans, wiped out a bunch of teenagers and are now stealing from them. This is the practice Balin thinks makes him so much better than Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon and his own son. This is the foundation of his political economy, the reason he and his men can survive on reaving. It is also the foundation of his cultural identity, the worldview known as the Old Way. George is ripping it to shreds in this chapter exposing it as the self-justifying lies of shiftless bullies who lack the empathy and imagination to live any other way. And Theon is just smart enough to realize that this makes them lesser men, not better men. He is just empathetic enough to be heartsick watching this display. He is able to see through it just enough to realize that these are not godlike heroes drunk on battle. They are everyday assholes drunk on booze, nothing more. But just as his uncle Victarion always immediately clamps down on the better angels of his nature in favor of knuckling under to the old way, Theon cannot bring himself to take the next step and implicate himself in these horrors. 
He tells himself that while he dislikes the taste of all this, he has no choice. He thinks that the horses deserved better without a thought for the men, and he only cares about the horses because he needs them for his wacky scheme. And when Theon imagines how horrified Ned Stark would be by all this, he quickly tells himself how silly he's being for thinking of Ned Stark in the first place. Unlike the show, I don't think this is really because Theon thinks of Ned as his actual father. Because Ned remains a dark, shadowy figure of suspicion and fear in Theon's mind. Rather, it is once again about the kind of life Theon wants to live, the self-image he desperately wants to maintain, which is irreconcilable with the old way. Now, to be clear, Theon's projected wish-fulfillment self-image absolutely lines up with the idea of the old way, as transmitted in the old red tales told on the Iron Islands. But it turns out those old red tales were full of shit. <laughs> the realities of bum-rushing fishing villages does not line up with that heroic image, nor does it line up with the feeling Theon got at the Whispering Wood when he was fighting with Rob on behalf of Ned Stark. So I, it's not so much that Theon deep down believes in Ned's model of justice and feels bad about betraying it. Again, Theon was introduced kicking Garrod's head and laughing. That's what <laughs> Theon thinks of justice. What Theon believed in, really was the same thing Sansa and Bran believed in, albeit from a very different perspective. Living a life like the main character in a story. Theon recognizes that his life doesn't feel like that anymore, but he's unwilling to make the connection to a larger moral critique of his actions and his father's. Instead, he just keeps thrusting out in all directions, trying to find a performance that will allow him to fit in and lead, and it's both hilarious and sad to watch him fail. <laughs> He sees Todrick and the Botleys squabbling over plunder and decides to give them a shot to talk about. In his mind's eye, he's imagining like a slow-mo Zack Snyder shot of his arrows <laughs> zooming past Todrick and plucking hairs from his beard. He's trying both to prove himself to them and recreate that Whispering Wood feeling to be the man he wants to be. And it goes as wrong as it possibly could. Because these men are not just pawns in the imaginary chess game of Theon's grand adventurous life. They have agency of their own, and so Todrick trips right into Theon's arrow. Theon has not proven himself to be a badass worthy of song and support by his fellow Ironborn. He has committed murder. The only man of his to die in this campaign so far died by Theon's hand. That's not a good sign. <laughs> Does this prompt any self-reflection on Theon's part? Does he start to wonder whether his grasping drive to fulfill his ego will leave behind him a trail of blood? Nope. Instead, he hastily tries to cover it up by suggesting uh, he killed Todrick on purpose because he had ordered no drinking and no squabbling over plunder. So Theon has doubled down on the worst possible version of himself, even though he only stumbled into that version of himself by accident, because if he doesn't, everyone will laugh at him. And that is Theon's arc in a nutshell. Now they know I mean what I say, Theon thinks to himself, even though he didn't mean to do it. But such is the corner he has backed himself into. Such are the ridiculous thoughts he needs to think to keep this stuff together in his brain. I mean, it's not like he's killing the Botleys for squabbling with Todrick over plunder. Instead, he has them slit Todrick's throat. They rob him even as he's dying. That is chilling stuff. That's kind of a nightmare of mine of being robbed even as I bleed out. Oof, and that's what's happening to Todrick here. These raiders lack even the basic fraternal loyalty of soldiers to each other. You could argue they're worse than the Mountain's men, which should not be possible. <laughs> Theon is not one of them, 
but he's willing to be as bad as them or worse, to be seen as one of them. To avoid being seen as a green boy from the green lands, to avoid being seen as a Stark, even as the Northmen hate him more and more for being one of the Ironborn instead. Again, there are no good choices here, but Theon picks the worst one. That is the story of Theon Greyjoy in A Clash of Kings. Theon always having no choices in picking the worst of his worst of his terrible choices in front of him. But I also think, too, Theon is operating in sort of a narrative trope grounds, seemingly being the ensign newbie of this pack of veterans. TV Tropes is such a great website, guys. He's the new platoon leader of a group desperate to earn the respect of the subordinates who think he's a green nobody who doesn't isn't worthy of any respect. And I was thinking of this scene in this chapter as George being inspired by Oliver Stone's 1986 movie, Platoon, and Theon playing the part of Lieutenant Wolf, desperate to earn the respect of his men, but being unable to do it because he just has a inability to kind of ingratiate himself in the community of the soldiers around him. In the movie, and here in this chapter, that green lieutenant ends up engaging in hellish crimes as civilians are brutalized and a village burns in the mid-arc climax of the stories. But Theon and Lieutenant Wolf never earn the respect of the war criminals that they command. They both fail in their attempt to instill respect in his men, and it leads to everyone hating them for fragging a fellow comrades and comrade in arms. But it's more than Theon being a total buffoon that separates him out from his men. Ultimately, he's a poser tryhard attempting to violence his way into a culture that looks at him like a Greenlander. That's kind of the thing about it, though. Violence is a component of the old way, but it's the act of an incredibly fucked up revanchist community. So Theon is acting in a community here, but Theon ain't a part of the club. In narrative fiction, though, the Ensign newbie is usually paired with a, quote, Sergeant Rock, a tough non-commissioned officer who the men respect. Again, thank you, TV Tropes, for the definition. And thankfully for Theon, he has his own very, he has his own Sergeant Rock, Dagmar Clefjaw. The only one of these guys I kind of like, the closest thing to a ray of light in a very dark chapter, is Dagmar Cleftjaw, captain of the Foam Drinker and Theon's true dad. He doesn't take part in the reaving, nor the battle. Theon orders him to stay back and guard the ships. Now, of course, Dagmar would have happily taken part. He is a lifelong reaver. We even learn in A Feast for Crows that he was the one who taught Balin the, par- taught Balin the pirate's life. But by not showing us Dagmar taking part, George sets him apart from the rest of these assholes, and follows that up by telling us that Dagmar didn't get envious nor prideful in response to Theon telling him to stay back. He took it in stride. He laughed. Taking things in stride is exactly what Theon can't do right now. He's itching under the skin with thwarted ambition and is desperate to do something about it. Dagmar is the closest thing in his life to a source of wisdom, a font of serenity, a man who knows who he is, what his life is all about. And that's why Dagmar was fine with being left back. His perspective offers him a sense of proportionality. He has a firmer grasp than Theon on what matters in life. He's already the cleft jaw. He's already a legend, just like the half-hand. He doesn't need to prove himself to anyone. He'll fit into the bigger picture snugly, just fine. But Theon is an outsider wherever he goes, and so turns to the ultimate insider to help him pull off his plan. Theon is also just turning to Dagmar for general guidance and support, however, because Dagmar is clearly the closest thing Theon ever had to a father. When Theon thinks of Dagmar, he thinks of smiles. More specifically, he thinks of smiles as a reward for masculine achievement, for accomplishing one's goals. Dagmar smiled whenever Theon proved himself, so Theon associated the feeling of proving himself with Dagmar's love. Not just acceptance, but love, family warmth, 
so Theon calls him uncle, despite him not being a Greyjoy. It's similar to the relationship between Asha and her own found father, Roderick the Reader, when he's uh, warning her about the other Greyjoys. You have three uncles. Four. Three Kraken uncles. I do not count. You do with me. Theon and Asha had to find love elsewhere because they got none from their father, because there is no love within House Greyjoy these days. It's not just a Euron problem. It's all of them. Moreover, as Theon thinks to himself, he never got that smile from the Starks. There is a parallel to that hole inside Stannis where Robert's love should be. Theon wants respect, fame, adulation. Yet all his attempts to achieve these things turn to ash, and the body count piles up. What he fails to understand is that only Dagmar gave him love, and that love is worth far more than badassery. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the enduring quality of the Song of Ice and Fire is how you are, is who you are by where you're standing. Rob Stark is a noble warrior fighting for the independence of the North, a loving brother to his fellow Northmen. But to the Lannisters, he's a beastling who can turn into a wolf and savage his enemies, as we saw at the Battle of the Oxcross. As to Dagmar, Bran will think of him as a monstrous war chief attacking Torrance Square right before Theon Greyjoy shows up in his bedchamber. But for Theon, though, Dagmar is a father figure, as you were saying, giving him his first bow, giving him the smiles that Balin Greyjoy never gave him. Exactly, and both are true. I mean, Dagmar is absolutely a monstrous war chief. Like, that's his, <laughs> been his whole career. That's his resume. He's proud of that. But that doesn't change what he is for Theon. Theon's famous for his wicked smile, but that smile only lasts as, ev- as long as everyone's playing along with his projected self-image. Dagmar's smile has more meaning to it. Dagmar smiles through the pain, smiles despite a mouthful of rotten teeth, smiles despite the hideous scar that will never go away. He smiles because it was worth it for him to trade his teeth for a sense of satisfaction, the security of knowing who he is when he wakes up and goes to bed each day. Theon has a set of perfect teeth, but as Dagmar notes, he's not smiling with them. His drive to regain that smile at any cost delivers him to Ramsay, who breaks those teeth. If only Theon could heed Dagmar's advice, the living should smile for the dead cannot. But the essence of youth, I think, is to ignore that advice until it's far too late. Because everything we've talked about so far has laid the groundwork for what happens next, in which Theon commits himself to a plan that makes so much sense in character terms, (laughs) I'm willing to forgive how nonsensical it is in the big picture. Theon's ultimate takeaway from all the blood he has spilled along the stony shore is not that he should stop doing that, or that the old way is unworthy. Instead, his takeaway is that his actions here will not propel him into legend, into the immortality of song and story he briefly tasted at the Whispering Wood. That's why Theon has lost his signature smile, not because he's committing evil atrocities, but because those evil atrocities aren't spectacular enough for him. They're grubby. You can't sing about them. Yeah, I agree. I think that's what he's outwardly thinking and emoting here. And I do think there is an element of the subconscious which has him feeling guilty over what he's doing, given all his asides about feeling sick over what he's witnessing his fellow Ironborn doing and what he had to do. It's also this supreme feeling of inadequacy he feels over how his dad regards him. Remember this line from this chapter? Why do you tell me about your deeds in battle, Dagmar asked him. It was me who put your first sword in your hand. I know you were no craven. Does my father, Theon asks. Dagmar then gives Theon a look that all but confirms how Balon sees Theon. And that moment really cuts Theon deep. He can't measure up as an ironborn warrior. He also can't measure up as Balon Greyjoy's son. Worst of all, his sister has the love of the ironborn and Balon that Theon can never, ever have. And just as in his last chapter, Theon decides that all of this is Asha's fault. Not his fault, not their father's fault, not the old way's fault. 
Nope, it's all Asha's fault. She is effortlessly leading the life he wants to live. A war hero taking a castle and earning their father's love. The ultimate ironborn hero of the old red tales. And she's doing that despite being a woman, which makes Theon feel even less like a man. His identity is rooted in his dick, and she's beaten him without one. <laughs> Dagmar tells him that the way to deal with this is to keep his head down, follow orders, and prove himself gradually over time, as Asha did. Let your actions speak for you. Again, Dagmar is the closest thing to a source of wisdom in Theon's chapters. This is the best advice Theon gets, but of course he doesn't follow it. And he has both sympathetic and unsympathetic reasons for refusing Dagmar's advice. Sympathetic, as I said, he's caught in between no matter what he does. When Theon insists that he's had battle experience, that the Starks used him properly as an asset, he's right. But he's still missing the point on a cultural level. Theon's exploits in the war so far won't impress his fellow Ironborn, because Theon's war stories all involve him fighting alongside <laughs> Ned Stark's son. So while, while all these stories make him sound like a sexy badass on the mainland, they only remind the Ironborn that Theon is like a brother to the son of the man who helped break Pike and end Balin's first rebellion. Even as Theon tries to live up to the old way image, even as he strives to be an insider, he remains an outsider. Dagmar says that Asha has never failed Balon. Theon says that he's never failed Balon either. And that's heartbreaking because it's true, but it doesn't help. Theon never had the chance to fail Balon or to make him proud. He's not a failure. He's something far worse. A stranger. And there's nothing he can do about it. Dagmar knows and loves Theon, but that's not enough for Theon. Because he wants approbation on a public, political level. Love is not enough, if only it was. And so Theon comes up with his plan to exceed his orders and take Winterfell. And this is where he veers right back into unsympathetic territory <laughs> for me. Right away, George shows us that Theon's crazy scheme is not rooted in logistical realities, but the projected ideal of glory from the stories and songs. We did not capture enough horses. A few, but, well, I'll make do with what I have, I suppose. Fewer men means more glory. And then he thinks to himself, uh, he says about Asha, we have four times the wits and five times the courage. Okay, so Theon doesn't have enough horses, or men, to carry out his plan. His response is not, well, guess I can't do the plan then, but awesome, larger slices of glory all around. <laughs> Even a first-time reader can smell disaster on the wind here. And Dagmar does not response point out that, you know, Asha has more men than we do, this is not logistically the best plan, but mostly Dagmar's response is cultural. It's about how it breaks, not with reality, but with the old way. We don't ride horses. We don't fight like this. We don't do this. Have you forgotten? Well, yeah. Theon rides horses. Because as, as we see throughout this chapter, Theon doesn't give a damn about the old way. He just wants it to seem like he does. So even before Theon's plan starts to go horribly wrong with Bran and Rickon escaping, we already know it's not going to win him the acceptance he craves. And that only becomes more clear as his conversation with Dagmar continues. Theon is talking about siegecraft, pitched battles against cavalry, all sorts of things that are not in the old way wheelhouse. Dagmar tells him, this is not how we fight. This is not who we are. Yet that raises the question of how this ironborn invasion of the north was ever going to work at all if they can't take castles in the interior. So while Theon's plan is bad, it's at least an attempt to seize the heart of the north, which Balin doesn't even bother to do. I mean, again and again, as we're going through these Theon chapters, we have to return to the topic of how short-sighted Balin Greyjoy's invasion of the North was. 
The entire plan hinged on Theon harassing the Stony Shore to bait the Northermen into not recognizing that the aims of the Ironborn were to take Boat Kaelin and Deepwood Mott. So now that those castles are taken, then what, Balon? Remember, like, back in Theon's second chapter, how Balon's only thought about Winterfell is that it would hold out for a year against the Ironborn after they achieved all these glorious victories? Why? What was, why would they actually, why is this going to happen this exact way that Balon is anticipating it to happen? Give Theon credit for this. He takes the initiative to try and stab the North through the heart, where Balon's plan was incredibly dumb and extraordinarily unlikely to succeed in the long term. Now, immediately withdraw the credit that I just gave to Theon's plan to take Winterfell, because as Ash is going to point out to Theon in his fifth chapter, she says, quote, your prize will, will be the doom of you. Krakens rise from the sea, Theon, or did you forget that during your years among the wolves? Our strength is in our longships. My wooden, my wooden pisspot sits close enough to the sea for supplies and fresh men to reach me whenever they are needful. But Winterfell is hundreds of leagues inland, ringed by woods, hills, and hostile holdfasts and castles. Lovely sense on George's part. So Theon is then cut off from his line of supply in incredibly hostile territory. And then there's the martyrdom aspect too. As Ash is going to point out, murdering, quote, Bran, and quote, Rickon, means that every non-Ironborn man is their eternal enemy. He'll make martyrs of these boys. But he's also making a martyr, for, a martyr of Winterfell itself, the heart of the North. There's power in the symbol of Winterfell, home of the Starks, harvest feasts, green gardens in the winter town to shepherd people and hold people safe in the worst that weather can offer at the Westeros. Winterfell has a near, if not total, religious symbolic importance to the Northmen. So violently seizing Winterfell makes the castle a rallying cry for the Northmen who want to right the desecration that Theon, the foreign invader, has brought to the North. And, you know, that's also something we see in A Dance with Dragons, where all of the mountain clansmen are riding for Winterfell because it's been despoiled by the people who committed the atrocities at the Red Wedding. They're willing to march through the middle of a blizzard in order to retake this castle and avenge the wrongs that have been done to the heart of the North in Winterfell. But the other thing about it, too, is that maybe it's not so much that Theon is an actual foreign invader in this chapter. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, that's the kind of the problem that Theon keeps running up against. The only reason that Theon's plan to take Winterfell has a prayer of working is that he knows Sir Roderick and Leobald Tallhart well enough to predict their actions. And why does he know them so well? Because he spent years in the North. So every move Theon makes to try and establish an Ironborn identity winds up exposing the Northern identity underneath. And yet Theon has now sacrificed that northern identity, as we saw at the start of the chapter with Benfred. There's no exit for him. So he has to conjure one out of thin air, composed entirely of the person he wants to be in the stories and songs. And that appeal to immortality in legend is precisely how Theon wins Dagmar over to his plan. Theon might not remember much from his childhood on the Iron Islands, but he remembers how much Dagmar loves the songs about him. Even as his mortal flesh ages, even as his teeth go rotten and his hair goes white, Dagmar feels young and strong again when his song is playing. The power of fiction to temporarily dispel and defy reality is one of the main reasons we keep telling each other stories. It's a power to be used for good or ill. Sometimes the shadow on the wall inspires our best self, as with Catelyn making one last plea for peace after her spiritual journey in the Sept near Storm's End. But other times, our projected image of who we want to be inspires our worst self. And that's what happens in Theon 3 to both our POV and his father figure. The person they want to be 
the main character of reality, is a mirage that leads them over the edge. And when Theon wakes up, he's alone in a room with the Bastard of Bolton. <laughs> Skin tingling. I mean, you know, Theon kind of reminds me of an alcoholic who tries to drown his sorrows in bigger and better drunks. You know, Theon's underlying sorrow is that he can't measure up to a culture he was ripped away from, and he can't res gain the respect of that father who he was ripped away from when he was 10 years old. So here in this chapter, we see him drowning his grief in violence, committing a war crime in this village as Theon's first blood drunk as an ironborn. It leaves him quite miserable, as you articulated so well. But hey, that's just because this one was just an unglorious battle, right? Go to Winterfell, commit more violence, do more terrible shit, earn the respect of your people and your dad. That's the ticket. Do a bolder deed. Do more violence. Get even more blood drunk. But as Theon is going to find out at Winterfell and at the mill outside of the castle, all the violence that Theon commits it doesn't earn him any respect. It doesn't grant him his father's love. It ends up stripping the humanity off Theon long before he's flayed by Ramsay Bolton. Ooh, beautifully put, sir. That's exactly right. Just like how, you know, in Valyria, they're monsters long before they get turned to literal monsters by the Doom. Theon gives up his humanity long before it's taken away from him. Exactly right. So, to shift into foreshadowing and groundwork for this episode, Theon thinks to himself, as we said, that Benford was lucky to escape the axe because it might have taken a few tries to behead him. Which is exactly what happens when Theon executes Farlin at Winterfell, a couple chapters of his from now. And that's a great structural gambit in Theon's arc is all these things he doesn't want to take part in, these things are distasteful or awful that are happening just out of the periphery of his eyes. He has to take part in them directly as his story goes on. And I think it's one of those wonderful elements about George's writing is that here, Theon's relationship with Benford Tahar is one of where he's not really friends with Benford. But he is friends with Farlin, as Theon is going to think about in that chapter. He had been talking about Farlin, about hounds, and different ways that he could... He was basically friends with this guy, and he ends up executing him and making a botch of the job, as as he was planning on doing with... As he was potentially going to do here with Benford Tallhart. And again, like we're seeing this decline in Theon, as he's going farther and farther down, this spiral, spiraling farther and farther down, killing a person that he knows here, killing a friend later at, at Winterfell, killing his former lover in the form of the miller's wife. Theon's going in some dark places in A Clash of Kings. I don't know if you guys have read these books before, but it's 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 a little dark. It plums real deep before bringing him up gradually back towards the light in A Dance with Dragons, and that's what makes it so powerful. Another little bit of groundwork being done here. Dagmar mentions three Ironborn fighters that rival him in the stories and songs these days. One of them, Black Lauren, accompanies Theon to Winterfell and dies there fighting Ramsay's men at the end of the book. The other two, Andric the Unsmiling and Carl the Maid, will appear in the flesh from A Feast for Crows. And I think... You can definitely uh, say, I think, with some certainty that when George was writing the Ironborn chapters in Feast, he went back to these class chapters and were like, okay, what are some names I mentioned? Who are some of these assholes? Okay, Andric the Unsmiling. Got it. Carl the Maid. Okay, they're characters now. Boom. It's great. I, lo I love it. And he builds these characters into some really interesting characters. Carl the Maid being one of my favorite super minor characters in A Dance of Dragons, or A Feast for Crows specifically, but he comes into his own in A Dance of Dragons as Asha's lover at, at Deepwood Mott. One of the most inspiring and romantic, I will stake my life on it, scenes in A Song of Ice and Fire. So I'll, I'll put that out there right now for people to criticize me about. Absolutely. And Andrick the Unsmiling is a fun like little Andre the Giant reference because he's, he's like a big dude. So, so... Shifting into our discussion portion of the episode, 
Dagmar Clefjaw is one of the those big one-off characters in the Song of Ice and character in Song of Ice and Fire characters who have a kind of uh, you know are written in a fun way and are, are fan favorites. They're very memorable, but they only appear in one chapter at least so far. Dagmar is one. Courtney Penrose is another who definitely only appears in one because he dies right after. Marwin the Mage has only appeared in one chapter so far. Widow of the Waterfront. There's a fair amount of these characters, and with a lot of them, you you know naturally get the question of are we ever going to see them again? How are we going to appear a second scene or a third chapter? So. The question we wanted to ask in this episode is, will Dagmar Clefjaw ever return to the narrative? And if so, how? Dagmar goes along with Theon's plan, laying siege to Torn Square in the hopes of luring Sir Roderick out of Winterfell. It works. Roderick marches south with a large force, as we're going to see at the beginning of Bran's next chapter. As Asha reports in Theon 5, Roderick easily defeats Dagmar in battle and sends him reeling back toward the stony shore with his survivors, but then Roderick hears that Theon has taken Winterfell out from behind him. Roderick immediately leads his men back to Winterfell, including Leobald Tallhart, Castellan of Torn Square, with, you know, presumably pretty much all his men. And this is where the Dagmar chronology starts to break down a little bit. Last we heard he was <laughs> fleeing back towards the Stony Shore. But at some point, Dagmar apparently goes back to Torn Square, and finding it undefended after Leobald and his men die at Winterfell, he just goes ahead and takes it. We first hear about this near the end of A Storm of Swords, when Stannis tells Jon that the Ironborn hold Torn Square, along with Moat Caelan and Deepwood Mott, which is not something we'd heard before. Again, Torn Square was just supposed to be a decoy. The Ironborn presence in Torn Square is mentioned a couple times in Cersei's A Feast for Crows chapters, and in Asha's Dance with Dragons chapters, it is confirmed that it, it is in fact Dagmar who holds the castle. Some of Asha's men want to retreat there and help him hold the line, assuming that the Northerners will try to retake Torn Square now that Moat Kaelin is theirs again. This is just after uh, Theon and Ramsay take Moat Kaelin. This potential showdown between the Northmen and Dagmar Clefjaw is interrupted on both sides by Stannis and his campaign in the north. He retakes Deepwood Mott from Asha, preventing them from joining Dagmar, and Stannis' presence in the north forces the Bolton Coalition to respond, marching north to Winterfell, rather than sticking around, as was the original plan, at Barrowton for the Ramsay Jane wedding, and presumably dealing with Dagmar nearby at some point after that. As such, Dagmar Clefjaw and Torn Square remain off-page for the entirety of a, of a Dance with Dragons, as, is they, as they did for A Storm of Swords, leading to the question, why is he there at all? <laughs> Why did George put him there? It's never made clear why Dagmar bothered to take the castle, or what his long-term goal is. This Again, this was supposed to just be a decoy. Aaron just goes back to the Iron Islands after his part in the war is done. Why doesn't Dagmar? Or why doesn't he go home for the king's boot, as Victarion does? I think the only reason Dagmar took Torn Square, and then stuck around this long, is that George needs him to, because Dagmar is Theon and Asha's ticket back home. After the struggle for Winterfell is done, Boltons are dead, Jon is resurrected and crowned, Stannis has been rejected and sent running to the Night Fort, Theon and Asha will presumably escape or be sent on their way. But how are they to get back to the Iron Islands? Well, Dagmar Clefjaw, that's how. He has men, he has boats, he's someone they can trust. He can sail them back to Harlaw, they can forge a coalition with Roderick the Reader, overthrow Euron's puppet Eric Ironmaker, and rule the Iron Islands wisely and well. And it's a little <laughs> optimistic, of course, it's not going to go exactly like that, I'm sure. But I, I think, because Dagmar is as minor a character as he is, it's weird that he's just at this dangling thread who is still at Torn Square for no particular reason. So if, if, if you puzzle that, puzzle that, I think it makes sense to me that he has this established relationship with Theon. He could be an easy link back home and an easy foundation for the coalition they're going to need to build. Does that make sense? What do you think? I I absolutely agree. I think that when we look at this character of Dagmar Clefjall, 
it's clear that George guarded him into being having a more major role going forward and has kind of left him as a seed that can eventually sprout up and then be the venue by which Asha and Theon can get back to the Iron Islands. I, I think it's it's fascinating that this is this minor character that has all of one chapter in Song of Ice and Fire where she has a dialogue scene in it, but gets repeatedly referenced throughout Storm and A Dance with Dragons and A Feast for Crows. It becomes that seed by which George will be able to get uh, the the Greyjoy children back, children, the Greyjoys back to the Iron Islands. I've been working for a long time, and I need to pick it up again, about how George used the seed of the Sand Snakes that was planted in a storm of swords in order to craft the House Martell into joining into the main story of A Song of Ice and Fire. So that was the original seed, and then eventually he moved it on into being all about the Martells moving into alliance with Daenerys Targaryen and the attempt with Quentin Martell, and then how likely that became the alliance between Young Grift and the Martells, which is likely going to, going to unfold in the winds of winter. It's similar to here is what happens with Dagmar Cleftjaw and that he takes a minor seed of this one guy who's going to this one minor spot in the north. He plans on taking it. It doesn't work out the first time. Everyone runs away. Then they come back and he takes it again. And now they're just sitting there waiting for the plot to reach him. <laughs> you know, there's there's a there's a sense where there's a, a while back I was thinking that maybe Theon and Asha would escape from Stannis Baratheon at the Battle of Winterfell itself and make their way back to, to Torn Square. I'm not sure if that's really uh, feasible given the weather conditions and given the fact that they're in the middle of a massive battle and that they have no means of supplying themselves and surviving all the way to Torn Square. So I'm kind of aware of this. So this, is a, this is a hypothetical I want to pose to you. Is it possible that Stannis is like sits there and thinks, well, you know what I need to actually take King's Landing? I need a navy, right? I don't have a navy anymore. The Iron Fleet is a navy, so maybe I'll just use these two Greyjoys as my means to attain that navy. I could definitely see that Asha tries to make a little alliance with Stannis on that basis, and maybe that's going to flower into something later. I don't know if Stannis is going to be the one making that decision. Who knows how long he lasts in, in the northern political community. Maybe control over Theon and Asha to whatever extent that exists is passed to the northerners by that point. But I could also see a motivation for whoever gets rid of Theon and Asha being just getting them out of there before one of the Northmen <laughs> kills them. You know what I mean? Just like yeah. if Stannis doesn't want to execute them, if the Starks don't want to execute them, it might just be a situation of get them out of here. <laughs> get them back to the Iron Islands before their presence starts another civil war. You know what I mean? It, it might also just be like they're politically radioactive. We, we we no longer wish to kill them. We just we need them away. Right. I mean, Stannis is only kept keeping Theon alive because he thinks that Theon can help him get into the castle Winterfell itself. Uh, but he plans to give him to has a warmer fate in mind for Theon Greyjoy. So, but I, I can see a place where in the story where they have to get these Greyjoys out of Winterfell and out of Stannis' camp or out of Jon's camp, whoever is actually in charge of Winterfell at that point before that they get killed, uh, or that they can't be politically useful to the person who's in charge of Winterfell anymore. So, I think that about wraps us up for this analysis of a Clash of Kings Theon three. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. If you guys have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Pod. Being Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcast. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at porkwentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics, vice and fire.wordpress.com. I want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Murrybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, 
Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson. Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Tim the Knight, who was guided by voices. Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Sir Way of Course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Mark Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost. Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens. Wisdom Benjicut, Alchem of the Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies. Septon Nerful Head of Hair. Lady Silverwing. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. And Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. We really appreciate your support. Absolutely. Thank you all very, very much. We really, uh, we're honored by it. It's, it's, it means a lot. So thank you so much. So, join us next week as we haunt Hall once again in A Clash of Kings Aria 8, in which Tywin Lannister sets off on a march and Arya whispers her second wish to Jack and Hagar. Mm, that's going to be an excellent, excellent chapter. So glad to get back to Hall, And we're going to have a guest for that one, our friend McCall from uh, Vassals of Kingsgrave, who we had on before for uh, Sansa's last chapter in the Game of Thrones. is going to be coming on our episode for that. We're going to be doing that one. Uh, live uh, next Monday at uh, 8.30 p.m. EST. That's uh, May 11th. Uh, today, if you're listening on the general uh, release date, next week if you're watching this live, and it's, we're going to be so, so happy to have McCall back for that really great chapter. 